This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to the Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. And I want to say that we are now very, very pleased to be part of LitHub Radio. That's LitHub Radio. That's at LitHub.com. I'd also like to say that I want to thank all the good folks at Shelf Awareness for Readers who are kind enough to make readers aware of the literary life. And they are providing an amazing service. So if you haven't signed up for Shelf Awareness for Readers, please do. You can get it through your local independent bookshop, wherever they send them out. So uh, please uh, pay close attention to Shelf Awareness for readers. Today, my guest is Pablo Cartaya. Pablo is a friend. He lives here in Miami. Um, Pablo, I've known for many, many years, and he has a marvelous story to tell about how he's become a writer, and not just a writer, but a very well-respected writer of middle-grade novels. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what's next for him, which may not be middle-grade readers, but it might be something else. And we're going to talk about how he just loves to be in front of kids. And I've seen him at work. And if you ever get a chance to see Pablo um, present to any group of kids, you're in for an incredible treat. Uh, His books are The Epic Fail of Arturo Zamora. His other book is called Marcus Vega Doesn't Speak Spanish. And his newest one, which is out this week, is called Each Tiny Spark, Be Brave and Light Up the World. And this is part of a, a new series that Penguin Random House is doing. It's the Coquila Penguin Random House imprint, which focuses on publishing diverse books for children and young adults. Pablo, welcome to the Mitchell. Living. It's so great to to be here. You know, thanks for uh, inviting me on. I want to know a little bit more of some of the things that I don't know about you, and that is, I know that your road to becoming a writer was a little bit a little bit windy. I know that you were an actor at one point. Yep. I know that you worked uh, many different jobs, including as a kind of a sommelier in a restaurant. Yes. Um, and a so, busboy, too. And a busboy as well. <laughs> so tell me about how you came to write these marvelous books. Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I I was, you know, of course, like, like you mentioned, I started off um, endeavoring in the acting field and worked right away. And it wasn't until I decided that I wanted to write stories that I really uh, did, as they say, paid my dues in a substantial way. I mean, I, I've done every job in the restaurant business, you know, from being a busboy to a dishwasher to, yeah, to the sommelier, to the, I, and, you know, and all that time, I remember, I remember a restaurant that I worked in, we had to have these uh, guayaberas as the, the busboys had black guayaberas and a guayaberas is, if you don't know, uh, for the readers out there, it's like a, a, it's a shirt that you don't, you don't tuck in and it has four pockets two on the top above the often made out of linen often made out of linen this was not made out of linen though because it would have caught fire we would have like burned <laughs> but um but yeah so we so and i remember so i had four pockets across the uh the front of the shirt and i had a little notebook 
inside my pocket that I was supposed to be writing orders, taking orders for, but I didn't use that. I used my the checkbook to write orders. I had this little notebook to write story ideas. And oftentimes I would be kind of tucked away behind the, uh, the machine that you place in the orders and I'd be writing down notes, you know, on stories. And I would get yelled at more often than not by, uh, by the owners and saying, what are you doing? You know, is it fair to say that you gave up acting to pursue a writing career? Well, that's an interesting story. I, 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 I came into, I'm Cuban American. It was it's an interesting journey that I have because when I when I went out to Los Angeles to pursue a career in acting, I did work right away. You were in Will and Grace. I was on Will and Grace. I was in a Pepsi commercial with Ricky Martin. I was in uh, a play that won the L.A. Times, uh, the, I guess the equivalent of the Obie, but in in L.A. And but the interesting thing was is that I was always kind of typecast as the like the the, the sexy Latino or the 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 Latino turned bad or the Latino who is, you know, takes the married woman, you know, and it was always, I, I, I kind of kept getting these sort of roles or I get called for these auditions. And then conversely, I would get called for these Spanish speaking auditions and would get pushed back by some of the Latinx um, actors. It's like, what are you do? What are you doing here? Like, why? What is a gringo doing here? And I'm like, I'm not gringo. <laughs> like, you hablo español. What are you talking about? He's like, ah, you you probably learned that in school. And so I'd get this sort of um, pushback of of from from my own Latinx community, and it was really frustrating for a long time. And uh, it, it sort of culminated, and I do I talk about this story a lot when I go and I speak to kids now, um, you know, about the books. But you know, it was this this narrative of what does my name represent for someone who is assuming something of my identity, um, and it was it it came to pass one time in a in a casting. And a casting director went and told me, you know, I, I just don't get, I don't understand why why your name is Pablo. You don't look like a Mexican. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not Mexican. I'm Cuban-American. And he's like, yeah, but you're, you're not dark enough to be a Cuban. And he said to me, you should change your name. And what what I did was I, I did what any 20-year-old, you know, at that time who wants to work, you know, I, I, I listened to him. And this is the problem that, that we that many people still face even today is this sort of this erasure that is that is based on good intentions right so this guy is telling me hey you know you're gonna work a lot more and he was very smart he was smiling you know he didn't have this like nefarious like mustache you were 20 years old at 20 time. yeah and i didn't were you he, in school out in la or i was you... in yeah i went to loyola maryland uh -huh. and it was, he was, it, he was almost saying it like he was doing me a favor, you know, so, you know, you should change your name because you don't look like what you say mm. you are and your name is kind of distracting. And there's a lot of family history that's connected to my name. So I won't get into that into too much detail, but, but what I have, what I found out later on, and this is when I realized that I was writing the types of books that I would end up writing is because it was almost a response to the erasure of my identity based on what a perception is. Now you grew up in Miami though, right? I, I grew up in New York. I grew you up did. in New York City. Um, did you then, have that same experience there? Did you feel like, did you feel part, did you feel like you needed to, to somehow inhibit your own identity while you were in New York or were you growing up 
in a more diverse neighborhood. I didn't think diverse. about it. Yeah. I didn't think, and I did grow up in a more, I mean, quote unquote diverse. I mean, I grew up just on the outskirts of Harlem. I played ball right. out there. And, you know, most of my, my best friends were, you know, African-American, you know, we were, um, played ball together. So diversity wasn't an issue when you were It wasn't playing. an issue and I wasn't thinking about it. I knew, like my parents, you know, are Cuban exiles and we grew up with the stories of Cuba and they left and, you know, but it was never anything that I had to stand and claim. But it became crystal clear when you went out to LA. But when I went out to LA, it was it was the first time that I had I kind of had to confront it from both ends. You were being typecast. Not only and, being typecast, exactly. and people were then to say, if you don't want to be typecast, you need to change your name. Exactly, exactly. And, and so the, this led directly to what interested you in helping kids, middle grade kids, to sort of not have the same kind of situation. Well, it's did. interesting. I mean, like, I, you know, I, I, I my... Um, I'm not saying you did it right, my, intentionally, but it was yeah. part of your, part of the swirl that went on when you were writing. Right. I mean, I, I would love to go and say that I, I came in here with a, a very altruistic idea of like creating these stories for all kids. I mean, I was really doing it for my 14-year-old self. Right. You know... Um, because retrospectively looking at the stories that I was connected to when I was a child did not really represent what my culture was, which is why when, when I flash forward to that point where I'm being told to change my name or being, my identity is being questioned, I was not strong enough to stand up for it. I was not strong enough to claim it at that moment. How long did that last? It lasted for a long time. I mean, I had a lot of shame because I didn't speak um, Spanish very well also. And I mean, I spoke it well enough. Did you actually change your name for trying to get yeah, some Yeah, I did. I did. I, I, I changed my name and and it was, it was, it was just, it just, you know, when you do something and it just doesn't feel right, but you kind of yeah. just kind of go with it and you're like, okay. So yeah. how, that was while you were in college. And you that were was, auditioning after college, you auditioned as well? I, I stopped and I, I stopped shortly after college. I went to New York and wanted to, you know, figure out a way to write stories. And I didn't know what that meant at that point. So, so you'd always been writing. I've, I've always been writing. The type of writing that I write now is, I suppose I could say that I've, I've, done it my entire life, but really aggressively in the last 10 years, probably. Yeah, because when I first met you, you had moved to Miami. Right. I don't know why you moved to Miami. What brought you to Miami? Exactly? My wife, my wife is a uh, pediatric speech pathologist, and she's also a theater major. And so she created this program. Uh, this is my wife's plug, because <laughs> I think she's awesome. And she's lovely. And did, did you meet her in New York? I met, met her, her, yeah, we met in New York. And then, and then my mother... My mother kind of recruited her to, because she, my mom has a school for individuals with special needs. And so my mom recruited, I think this is my mom's like master plan to get, to get you guys, to get together. her grandkids down, yeah. down from New York. Um, so offered, you know, her the opportunity to kind of work with the population in her school. And so she's created this wonderful theater program. When did your parents move to Miami? My parents moved to Miami uh, when I was a, a junior in high school. 
And, and I mean, I was, I mean, could you imagine being 16 years old? Did you move with him? Yes. And being 16 wow. years old and being like what I call plucked. Yanked out of school. From, from school. Like school. I had a girlfriend. I mean, I was like, you know, and so a lot of that, you know, I, I and it might be a reason why I, I gravitate towards this particular uh, field of literature because it's it's sort of I had so many time stop for you. When you yeah, were yeah. I had I had this time stop, and I and I I really I, I found it very difficult. I mean, I liked being in Miami, but it was a culture shock. And it's interesting because I'm Cuban, yeah. right? And it well, was it was a massive culture shock. You know, people who are not from Miami don't understand that as much. That you know, Miami is so very much dominated by Cuban culture, yet. If you're Cuban, if you're Cuban American, and you didn't grow up in Miami, it's yeah. still a very foreign city to you in a lot of ways. I yeah, think. yeah, it was, it was, it was wild to me, and um, I mean, I, I grew to embracing it and to loving it, which is, I think, what happened as a result of my the that my debut middle grade book, which is you know the epic fail of Arturo Zamora, is set right. in a community in Miami. Right, and so give a give a little quick synopsis of that book. Um, that's the book that that really raised your uh it really raised your 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 the profile yeah profile well it did as an author it it really it it really did and i'm so glad that it it won the american library association's pura belpre honor um and i was i was so proud of the fact that it was a book dedicated to my abuelos to my grandparents um, and it's the story of it's a story of a thirteen-year-old named Arturo Zamora, and he lives in a in a fictional town in Miami. And they are, you know, he works in his uh, grandmother's restaurant along with all of his family, and they all live in the same apartment complex. Um, and then one one fateful summer. Um, there is an old family friend who brings their 13 year old daughter who's suddenly, you know, like Arturo doesn't understand what are the conflicts that he's having after seeing this childhood friend. Um, but then also simultaneously what's happening is that there's a greedy land developer that's coming in trying to take Abuela's restaurant and build this gigantic high rise. And so really it's a, it's a, book about a lot of things and it is a lot of fun um but it's it's a book about loss and it's a book about um you know binding uh, you know binding together with community and family in in tough times um, and this led to marcus vega doesn't speak spanish yeah and marcus vega doesn't speak spanish is is a book that is set in springfield pennsylvania which is a fictional town in pennsylvania and it's this very very big eighth grader named marcus who goes to Puerto Rico to find his estranged father, who he hasn't seen in 10 years. And Marcus goes with his mom and his, his younger brother, Charlie, who has Down syndrome. And they venture throughout the island. And there he discovers parts of his identity and parts of his family that he's never known um, and kind of co connects with this his, his Puerto Rican identity um, that he didn't know that he had to that level. And it's... Yeah, I guess, and I, and I say this to the kids when I go and I speak in front of the kids, it's like, okay, the, you know, if you ask, what are the, you know, because teachers ask, what are the themes of the books? Um, and I, and I suppose if one were a teacher or anybody were to look at what are the themes of my, of my books, they all revolve around three things and it's uh, family, community, 
and culture. And, and they, they all have, some of them have a little stronger elements of one or the other, but, but really that's what it is. And I think it's because after all of this journey that I've had with discovering who I am, um, I think that those are the things that are the, are, are the most impactful for me is my you know, family, my culture and, and my community. Uh, which is why I write very, very, very um, intensely. Would it be fair to say that your your characters, who often are special needs kids in one way or another, does that is that come from your mother's experience, or from you knowing what you know the school? My mother's gonna love that you said this. I don't mean your mother's. She's gonna love. She's gonna be like, you see, Mitchell is right. (laughs) Mitchell is right. He owes. He owes me. Has this been an ongoing? My, uh, listen, my mother. When I was when I was eighteen, I have to I have to say this because I know she's going to be listening to this. My mother said, when I was eighteen, she goes, "You're going to write for young people," and I said, "You're crazy. I'm going to be a serious writer." I said this. Well, you are serious. I know writer. that, but I said this people. at an eighteen at eighteen because I'm thinking I'm like going to be like the Thomas Pinchon of like Cuban American, <laughs> you know authors right and i'm like a very serious author and and i i kind of scoffed at my mother for saying like yeah right you know and here i am all those years later writing books that are actually like truly having an impact on young people's lives in in ways that are connected to identity to culture which is what you saw your mother do in and and yeah and so teacher. so yeah so mom you know got to <laughs> you got to give her the props you got to give mom the props she's going to be very happy about that well i'm curious about each tiny spark then because that truly is a new imprint for yeah. for penguin random house talk about the imprint a little bit namrata tripathi is um, she's the publisher of kokila and the um, the catchphrase of it is centering stories from the margins, and it's a it's an imprint of Penguin Random House, um, and I cannot say enough about about Namrata, and I can't say enough about the the imprint. Um, they are they're necessary stories. Um, it's bringing, you know, all kinds of voices. Not necessarily like, oh, let's let's write a diverse story. It's let's let's write stories that celebrate the world that we live in, you know. Um, and and I just love it. And there's so many great books coming out from there. I mean, I highly recommend the young adult novel, um, uh, "The Patron Saints of Nothing," by Randy Ribai, which is a if he's a Filipino American and he goes to. The, the the character goes to the Philippines to find his brother's killer who was killed in the by the Duarte regime. Mm. So and it's a young adult novel, you know. Wow. Um, there's this wonderful picture book by Isabel Quintero called uh, "My Puppy Has a Motorcycle," which is a beautiful book. And like, could you imagine what that must be for a young, a young kid, a young Latinx kid reading a story about their dad in Corona Park in California? You know, like about their dad riding around in a motorcycle when he's a construction worker and it's celebrating the beauty of of, of diversity of, of diversity of, and of voices of voices yeah. i mean when you know it's so interesting because as a bookseller i don't remember a time when the notion of diversity in publishing was celebrated 
as strongly as it is now and when there are people of different voices writing and publishing. At the same time, in our general culture and our general political culture, we are at a, a horrible crossroads where we have yeah. to stand up and we have to say these voices are really important and even more important yeah. now. Because I always think of that kid in school who's hearing something coming from our 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 president who is diminishing that culture. Yeah. And yet you are and many others are writing books in which that culture is being celebrated. And I'm hoping that that, that voice, your voice, is the voice that they're listening to. Well, you know, I, I go I go around the country and I have I have the great privilege of of being invited to a whole bunch of places. Interestingly, most most of Middle America. Like, well, you told me a great story. Tell that story about Boise. Oh, and, and when Boise, you went to Boise, Idaho. In Boise, so I was in I was in Boise, Idaho as as a one book one community event, and it was a wonderful wonderful time. Prior to my arrival. The organizer there um, mentioned to me, he said, you know, I don't know if you remember, but there was Middleton, um, the Middleton School District, which is about 45 minutes, um, I believe, west of, of Boise, Boise, as they say. And uh, Middleton became infamous uh, last Halloween for, you know, posting some some offensive uh, things. Some teachers posted some offensive things about you know, the wall and Mexican immigrants right. and stuff like that. And, you know, this, 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 this gentleman, his name is RT. He said, you know, pa Pablo, I just want you to know that is not us. And, and I said, well, why don't we reach out to the, to the superintendent there? And like, let's, you know, let's talk to them, you know, let's, let's go over there, you know? And so he did. And, and to the superintendent's credit, he said, "Yes, we would love to have Pablo over." And I'm thinking, so I, so during my visit, you thought it'd be a little, a little room I, I thought, filled. That's what with I thought. Kids. I was like, "Oh, okay, fine." Like you know, I, 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 I didn't want to be that close, and and miss the opportunity to at least speak to a few people, even kids, you know, especially kids. And and so I I went over. And, and I'm, I'm expecting like, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to be put in like a tiny little library and like, like four kids are going to come and like, okay, there, they just did their thing. And when I get into the, um, when I get to the school, they escort me over to the, to this gigantic gymnasium. And I was like, all right, what, what's going on here? There are police officers. I'm like, oh crap, <laughs> what happened? What did I do? Um, and eight buses show up. 1500 kids show up to this um to this event and i'm watching this and i'm like oh wow and they brought the superintendent brought every single um fourth and fifth grader to come hear me talk so impressive and i did my thing was it was it epic fail or was it the it was it, it was it kind was of just more, like my general like this general is the books quotes. these are the books that i write hablé en español empecé a hablar en español entonces la gente was like oh my, what what oh my god and then some of the kids some of these kids as soon as i started speaking spanish they their eyes light up and these are the school that they were marginalized and now i was there speaking and they're eyes are lighting up and then the other kids are and a whole bunch of them and then afterwards you know i was like uh, you know it was like okay you can you can go now it's fine thank you so much whatever i went to the exit as the kids were filing out and i high-fived every single one of them oh. 
And the kids were like, gracias, man, gracias, sir, gracias. You know, like all of these kids were, 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 were thanking me for being there. And then the, the curriculum director said, you know, we should do this more often. And, and I thought it was just a great example of, you know, we have to be their advocates. We have to give ourselves a chance. If I didn't give myself the opportunity to like, to go out there and speak in a place where, you know, th their voices were silenced, if I wouldn't have done that, they would have missed out. And this is happening across the board with so many different voices right now. You mentioned a few of them. Yeah. I'm very proud of the fact that the Miami writing community has writers who are writing from all of the different, not only socioeconomic perspectives, but um, cultural perspectives. Talk about a little bit about how this fits into the Miami writing community as well. I mean, you know, the Miami writing community is is one of those best kept secrets in America, I think. <laughs> you, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of us here. And, you know, from, I mean, it's like the University of Miami uh, boasts, their MFA program boasts the most diverse faculty in the country. The University of Miami. Chantel. Yeah, and there's, you know, Chantel Cervello, there's Abelina Galang, and there's, you know, Jaswinda Bolina. I mean, there's so many, you know, faculty members. And then, I mean, just think about the population that is here, you know, studying writing. And so there's, we're we're here in, in this community. And publishing. And publishing. And many of, many of, many people who are coming from that community are publishing for this market for kids and for yeah. young adults yeah um, and 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 the the interesting the interesting thing to um and it's important to note there are a lot of steps being taken to you know increase the types of books that make it into uh young people's hands um from from uh, multiple voices and cultures there is still a tremendous amount of work to be done uh, there was a study that was published by a group of educators in Wisconsin, and it's it's it's, it's escaping me now. But it's a uh, it's the the state of children's literature and diverse voices, and there are still out of the titles that were published in 2018, over 60 percent of them are still folk have main characters that are white. And the other 30% are characters that are, the main characters are animals. Mm. The rest, African-American makes up 11% of the total books. These are the total books published. Mm. Now, I mean, I'm not giving, and the numbers are, are, I might be like one or two percentage points off, but um, the Latinx characters, 7%. And indigenous peoples, 1%. I mean, there's right. still there's, there's a still lot of work we're, we're making headway, been. but it's but important I, to recognize. <clears throat> it's important, I think, to recognize that there is there's a lot of work still to be done. I well, think. the cool thing as a bookseller, I see what people are buying, and they are buying these books, and they're yeah. they are looking for books that have diverse voices, not only in the teen market and the middle grade market, but it it's also true in the adult market, and whether it's yeah. you know whether it's fiction whether it's biography, whether it's memoir, people are looking for voices that A, are either different from themselves, 
or that reflect who they really are. Yeah, and, and that, that leads a me thing? to you becoming the next uh, Thomas Pynchon. And <laughs> aren't you moving into the adult world at some point? I, I, I am. I've begun to, yes, um, enter into that world. <laughs> I hesitate to reveal too much Don't, as of yet, but we'll, I'll but come back on and I'll... I'll you, we will have Pablo back on um, when, when that but, book is coming But yes, but, but honestly, I, I'm also um, incredibly excited to, be, to continue writing for young people. I cannot emphasize enough how incredible it is to go speak at a school um, and see those. Oh, well, I've seen you here at the bookshop. To see, see those you, faces. To see you put those kids in a different place is unbelievable. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, like I, I go and I'll start, I'll be, you know, 800 kids will be there and and I'll start saying, a ver, ¿quién aquí adora su abuelita? And half of the kids are raising their hands excitedly and it's it's an incredible feeling and getting the the return on these young people saying wow i i have never i have never felt so seen before in a book i had a, a story um i'll share with you briefly there's i was in uh, virginia uh this past april and there you know i had a full day of you know, I call them shows. Because, well, you know, you've seen them. I mean, they're like, I put on like a show using my acting background and all that. And I was exhausted. I was exhausted. It was the end of the day. And one of the librarians, she says, you know, um, Pablo, thank you so much. I just, I was wondering if it's okay if you can talk to one of our students. She was too shy to talk to you in the signing line. And she just really wants, she really wants to talk to you. And I said, yeah, of course. You know, So I sit there and she you know this this uh this young girl she's eighth grade and she's kind of fidgeting with the book marcus vega doesn't speak spanish all right now this is a book with a male protagonist you know set in springfield pennsylvania and mostly taking place in puerto rico and she's kind of fidgeting with the book and she looks at me and she's like you know i never um i never read no books before she tells me this and i said all right cool. she goes, i read yours though i said oh thank you thank you it was good i said all right cool thank you very much she goes, yeah my brother has down syndrome i said oh okay he goes, yeah it's only me my mom and and my brother this and she's telling me i'm like oh all right well i mean i'm glad you liked it she goes i've never seen myself in a book before that's cool that's all she said. Job done. And of course, I turn around because my <laughs> eyes get completely bloodshot and I don't want to see like, I don't want to be crying in front of this kid. But it was, she just she just looked into my soul and right. just said, thank you. And the di didn't go and create this, you know, give me this big like, oh my God, thank you so much. You know, she just told me like it was. She just said this, I connected with this. And she was holding that book like if it was something precious to her because the story spoke to her. And I, I realized that, that what I'm doing is a great privilege and, and a great honor. And I'm, and I'm going to do it as long as I'm, I'm allowed to. <laughs> and boy, am I happy that you are. And with this new book, Each Tiny Spark, tell us a little bit about it. 
and then I'd love you to read a little something. Oh, I'd be I'd well. be happy to. So this this book is very special. It's okay. So let me just preface by saying this was the hardest book I have ever had to write, um, and I mean that in the best possible sense. Um, you know, I will. You know, a lot of times, you know, a book comes out and it's like, oh, you just wrote a book. Congratulations. You know. Um, and I, we don't we don't talk enough about the effort that is put into actually constructing the novel, and also, you know, the the work that you engage with with your editor to make it the best possible book. And so I, I think it's just I, I do want to take that brief second to just mention that, in that this book has has really sparked a couple of little things here, and it hasn't even come out yet. Um, you know, about the the issues of immigration, about the issues of community, about the issues of PTSD, um, a child with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, like there's all these things. But the nuances of these books were, were one, some of the hardest things that I've ever had to do um, because my publisher and my editor demanded I get it right. And I love that. And it was it was really it's a really a testament to Kokula. And I'm going to give them a shout out now. Again, because truly it's that's the kind of imprint that that they are is that they are demanding of their authors. And it's like you're going to you what you are saying is important and you need to go as far as you can go with it. And so many readers don't understand the sentiment or aren't aware of the sentiment that you just that you just um, yeah, articulate. And I and I and I really I think it's important to to talk about and the, the book. The book is deeply personal to me in that the main character, it's my, it's my first female main character. Uh, well, actually, technically not, but for in this, in this um, age group, it is. And Emilia Torres has um, inattentive type attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, my daughter also has ADHD. Like Emilia, my daughter just finished sixth grade. And there are many similarities that that exist with this character and my own daughter. So that was a really, really, it was very important for me to get the voice right because I wanted, I wanted it to sound, I wanted, I wanted my daughter to read it and say, I, I can hear myself in there. And I was really proud when she did read it and, and she's like, yeah, I do that so much, don't I, Bobby? And I'm like, I, I'm just, I'm just, and she's like, wow, yeah, okay, yeah, I, I see. And it was a really interesting thing. And then she told me, she goes, you know, I, I've never read a character that has ADHD. I go, well, well how, what did you think? She's like, yeah, it was good. <laughs> and that's that's the best compliment you can have, I guess, for a, for a sixth grader, right? But there's the the main thread of the novel is this 12 and a half year old and her father, who's just returned from uh, deployment, and her father's having a tough time, and he's having a tough time communicating with her. My, I, I, I am not. I, I was not a service um, person. Um, my father was, and I have family members that were, but it, it's it's more a metaphor on how, as a father communicating with a preteen girl who is going through her own changes and her own growth into independence. It's pretty hard anyway. Yeah. And it's, it was sort of, it was kind of my way of exploring that, but through this, through this sort of this character, these two characters, 
And sometimes I just don't know what to say to my kid. I don't know. I don't, and I, I don't want to say the wrong thing. And, but I, and, and sometimes I just don't say anything. And she, my own daughter is like, well, why aren't you helping me? Why aren't you saying anything? And it's sort of this, it's a very interesting dynamic. And I, I just want to do right by her. But at the same time, I also, you know, I'm her dad and I, I, but I have to, you know, so this, this. Well, now she understands you a little bit more. Yeah. And so a lot of, well. so a lot of that is, I mean, really the main, the big threat sure. of that is this communication and they end up rebuilding a 1968 Shelby together. Oh, terrific. So she's a, she starts welding this car with him. Oh my God. And it's really cool because it's set in, um, uh, it's a fictional town in Northern Georgia and the abuela character owns the only auto shop in town. Hmm. And abuela is this like super super tough she's like the tough as nails abuela you know that's like you know straighten your hair and we're gonna you know like you got to put your best foot forward and all that very tight you know pressed with her you know little pearl earrings and like you know hair up in a perfect bun and she's very she's very rigid you know um and it's by design you the, the kid doesn't realize why and you find out later on in the novel is like why she's had to kind of put on this face in this small southern town, being not only a woman but a an immigrant running the only auto shop in in town. So you you find out why, but Emile doesn't understand that at the beginning. But Emile and her dad start rebuilding this 1968 Shelby together. And somebody has asked me like, well, wh why why welding? Why rebuilding a car? To be honest with you, I love the 1968 Shelby. No, they're amazing. <laughs> I I love that car. The Green Hornet is like. The, the GT350 is like... Have you driven one? No, but I I sat in one at the auto show and it's it's like, it's just the coolest car ever. And I just had this idea of like, oh my God, wouldn't it be so cool to like just rebuild this car together? And that becomes sort of a metaphor for... For their relationship. For their relationship. Let's rebuild so it. So read a little bit of it. Okay. I wasn't fast enough. Abuela appears behind me, already dressed with her makeup on, hair in a perfect bun. Ven, she says, holding two brushes and a flat iron. She gestures for me to follow her into her room. I really wanted to get a few knots out of my hair before she got started. She sits me down on the footstool, facing her full-length mirror. As soon as my butt touches the seat, she hammers away with the hairbrush like she's some kind of blacksmith hairstylist. My head jerks as Abuela pulls. She takes a skinny comb with a long, pointy handle and splits my hair into sections with hair clips that look like chomping alligators. With one section in her hand, she takes a flat iron in the other. She feeds my hair into the iron and clamps down on the strands. Steam curls out like a dragon exhaling as the iron slides from the top of my head to my tips. Even though she's never burned me, I get nervous when Abuela gets close to my ears. I don't have my mom's jet black hair, but I have her curls, or waves. My hair swooshes like a rolling tide, but after Abuela's done with it, it's as flat as a pancake. Today... She straightens my hair out and puts it up in a ponytail. Pa que se quede liso, she says. I guess she's worried that if I don't put my hair up, it will get wavy later. Abuela turns my head toward the window and keeps working. Beautiful. Pablo, Pablo Cartaya, each tiny spark. And um, I thank you for being thank you so much. my guest today on The Literary Life. And this I'm is a sure great, I mean, I love this podcast. I want you to know, you know how like, how cool I feel being on your podcast? It's the <laughs> Well, you'll be on it many, many more times. <laughs> it's like, it was so neat. I was like, oh my God, Mitchell, you want me to be on the podcast? Well, you're, you're a very special member of this community. You mean a lot to us here at Books and Books. And we're all really excited at the success that you're having. Thank so you thank so much. you. Thanks. All the best.